Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where I head up to the University of Hong Kong campus to chat with Hong Kong historian Professor John Carroll about his book, Canton Days, British Life and Death in China, an account of British traders in China from the mid-1700s to the end of the Opium War in 1842. John Carroll doesn't just talk about the Hongs like Jardine Matheson, but some of the smaller traders whose names have sometimes disappeared a little from historic accounts, partly because they simply weren't as successful. But there are also well-known names. We hear about missionary Robert Morrison doing unofficial translation work for the East India Company, even though he shouldn't have done. Some men in debt, the dominance of opium, and the observations of a young American woman visiting her aunt in Macau. This is a period of history that needs to be understood on its own right, not as something either leading up to the Opium War of uh, 1839 to 1842 or to the British occupation of Hong Kong in January of 1841. It's in southern China. It's the Canton, which we would say today is uh, Guangdong, but it's uh, some very interesting characters and early businessmen. And, of course, Jardine Matheson, the Big Hongs, play a role in your book, but uh, so do some really quirky people that have, you know, with your writing, some of them owe money. <laughs> so we see some rather irate letters going to and fro but uh, from Jardines. But uh, in, in general, some of those have disappeared from history, but all of them were coming out to trade in Canton. So who were some of the people that you came across? Any time you think of this period, you think of uh, of Jardine and Matheson. But these are just the two people, the, the big guys, the two who, who succeeded, the two who got away in a way, although uh, Jardine died very quickly after after leaving Hong Kong, going back to, to the UK. Um, so some of the people that I find interesting, uh, probably the most interesting, is a man named James Innes, uh, who the book actually starts off with. Uh, he came to, to Canton from, from, from his native Scotland, and as one of his relatives put it, uh, never really found ways to make money very well. Um, he, he didn't actually die penniless, um, but he got involved in all kinds of schemes. He hated the East India Company, which had control over which British merchants could go to, to China and, and stay there. He hated the Qing government, which uh, the government of, of China, which also had regulations on who could go to China and when, when they could be there. And he was, I would say, probably uh, quite fiercely litigious, um, defying any kind of authority that, uh, that he encountered. But I think he would have been a good person to have a glass of whiskey with. Yes, they're interesting people. But James Innes, he's, he's striding out there in Canton. So what sort of businesses did he try? Pretty much everything, but mainly opium. Speculation, but, but mainly opium. And that is also one of the points of the book, is that uh, everybody was involved in, in opium in some way or another. It, it, it was simply the thing, that, the thing that people did. So describe to me how the trade in opium went on. Well, originally, the, the people who sold the most of the, the opium were, of course, the East India Company, and they derived this, this opium from... So from they were the, sort of the, the first monopoly, really? Oh, yes, yes. Um, they were very fiercely dedicated to preserving their own monopoly and to, to sort of fighting what today we would call free trade. Although they did sort of see the, the shifting winds, I suppose you could say. They were aware that it was illegal to import opium into China. Uh, they were also aware that this might not look good back at home. So what they did was they figured out a way to sell the opium from India to other British traders, free traders, sometimes known as uh, private traders or country traders. They then took the drug to, to Canton and, and other parts of China. It's interesting, isn't it, this early drug dealing history, really? But physically... 
what would the opium have looked like when it's, it's so the sort of big chests arriving on I've always had this image but I see always so many different historic pictures of what it would have looked like well, it came in chests. That's exactly the, the unit of measurement. And the uh, the opium would have come in balls that look somewhat like uh, small cannonballs. So opium becomes the thing coming in from... Coming in from India. Yeah, sometimes from Turkey, although most of the opium coming in from Turkey is uh, imported by American merchants. Although that's a very tiny proportion compared to the opium coming in from, from, from the British through India. So the traders are looking to bring the opium in to sell in Canton, and then what are they taking back out? They are, the biggest uh, good is tea, but they also take silk and, and a few other items as well. And of course, uh, they take out silver, because the Chinese have to pay for the opium with silver. And that's one of the big problems with uh, the economic system in China at the time. When you were researching your book, did you spend time, there's the, the island with the factory buildings or the ex sort of factory houses. A lot of the time people were also confined to Macau. Did you physically spend a lot of time um, in sort of traveling around looking at some of these old buildings? I've looked at some of the buildings, but almost all of the materials on the foreign community in China are outside of China. In the British Library, for example, in the National Archives at Kew, uh, many of the, the accounts uh, written by these people are actually freely available on uh, Google Books, for example. The Hong Kong University libraries have materials, the Hong Kong Public Records Office. But in, in fact, I'm not the first person to make this point. Most of the materials about this community are, in fact, outside of China. When you decide on a book, like you do, it becomes Canton Days. But uh, at the beginning, what were you aiming to write? Not and I'm just take because you write this in your forward. So. <laughs> I do, and definitely not Canton days. Um, the plan was to write a, a general book on the history of Westerners in modern China, beginning in the late 1700s and going all the way up until the Communist Revolution of 1949. And in some ways, very much like the men who feature in the book, I got stuck in the beginning. The first chapter was supposed to be a quick and dirty chapter about the foreigners in Canton, and I got stuck and simply couldn't get out. Fortunately, I lived to tell the story. <laughs> Why? Because they were so interesting. Well, they were so interesting, but, uh, but there's the period in itself, right? As I mentioned earlier, it's often seen as, as a prelude to something else. It's almost, it's almost always seen as nothing but uh, a story of cultural clash and conflict, whereas, in fact, there was all kinds of interesting accommodation, collaboration going on, a lot of mingling between foreigners and Chinese. Um, so it, it, was, it was a much more complicated period than I, than I thought. Can you tell me about, I mean, you described James Innes, but um, could you talk me through some of the, the key business people? And they would have been British, they would have been American? Uh, well, most of them would have been British. Um, by the 1820s or so, you would have more Americans. But when I, when I went in to write the book, I wanted to write more about the, the, the Brits. Um, for one, I enjoy doing research in the UK. And again, they were, they were the largest number of foreigners in China at the time. Lots and lots of people, as you've, we've already mentioned, uh, James Matheson and William Jardine. George Thomas Staunton was also there. He was the son of George Leonard Staunton, who had gone as the official secretary to Lord McCartney's embassy to China back in the, uh, the 1790s. James Innes was there, uh, a friend of his, uh, Arthur Saunders Keating, who used to be a friend um, and then became sort of an enemy, he was there as well. And then, of course, you have, when we get to the Opium War period, you have many different British soldiers and uh, naval people who come through Hong Kong as well. 
Robert Morrison was there. In fact, the book has an entire chapter dedicated to Robert Morrison. And one of the points made there is that we probably think of him mainly as a missionary, but in fact, uh, he spent more of his time translating and interpreting for the East India Company. Now, he technically wasn't supposed to be doing this because the East India Company, at least in theory, had a policy against evangelism. But he needed to make ends meet because the, uh, the London Missionary Society, which sent him to China in 1807, simply did not give him enough money. Interesting, yes. Well, of course, you've got to survive. Right. And, of course, many of these people are buried in the uh, Protestant cemetery in, in Macau, where I have spent some time just, uh, just wandering around. Indeed. I mean, I find a lot of the graves here uh, in Hong Kong, but also, as you say, in Macau, the stones really speak, don't they? They certainly do. And uh, with Robert Morrison, yes, I mean, a superb academic. Morrison's son was also there as well. Um, he's often labeled as a missionary. He was not a missionary. Um, he actually was a, an interpreter for the private traders who by 1834 had started to take over power from the East India Company because the East India Company's monopoly ended that year. In terms of when you when you look at some of these early people, I mean, what are you working off? I mean, as you say, is it letters? Is it diaries? Right. So in Robert Morrison's case, it's definitely letters. Um, people wrote a lot back then. I mean, that was the only way you could, you could communicate. One of the things that uh, Robert Morrison complained the most about in his, in his uh, journals was how few letters he received from overseas, right? He was always writing and never, get, never getting much, uh, much back. So we have his letters. Um, his correspondence is divided among the Welcome Collection in London and, the, and SOAS, the School of Oriental and African Studies of the University of London Library. And in fact, I was able to read his very last letter to his son. Um, and we, it, was, it was quite an exciting moment because the Welcome Collection was about to close in 10 minutes. And I had to leave the UK the very next day to return to, to Hong Kong. And I was racing through reading it. Now, I knew, of course, that this was the last letter he would ever write. He didn't know it, um, but it was actually quite an exciting moment. So we have letters. We also have books that people wrote. For example, John Davis, who later went on to become governor of Hong Kong, he wrote many, many books about China. He became one of the early Sinologists. We also have lots of letters by George Thomas Staunton, who probably not like many young people today, wrote to his mother almost every day. Um, he had written to his father as well, but his father died quite early on after he came to China. We have East India Company reports and, and records. We actually have three newspapers that began during that period. One was the, uh, the Canton Register, which was sponsored by Jardina Matheson. We then had sort of the, the rival newspaper known as the Canton Press, which was uh, sponsored by Lancelot Dent. Dent were uh, Johnny Matheson's main rivals. And then we also have something called the Chinese Repository, which was uh, set up by an American missionary, Elijah Bridgman, with help from Robert Morrison and, and other, other Europeans or Westerners living in Canton and in Macau. From the perspective of Chinese sources, do you get also um, any kind of uh, remarks being made by them about uh, some of these British and American traders? You do, although that would be another book. Um, I mean, uh -huh. looking at, at how foreign, Chinese people looked at foreigners here would yes. be a fascinating story in its, in its own right. Yes. My uh -huh. guess, though, is that the Chinese people who the foreigners came in contact with the most, for example, uh, their servants, perhaps the, uh, the women who lived on the flower boats, the, the prostitutes or the courtesans, they're certainly not going to be writing about this sort of thing. But that really would be a fascinating study. Yes. In terms of, now you were describing that it wasn't all about clash. There was a lot of compromise or, you know, good relations in places. So can you describe some of that? 
Well, I think the first thing we have to keep in mind is that the, the Canton system of trade, which was the system that, that confined, at least in theory, Western trade to the port of Canton from the 1700s all the way up until the end of the Opium War in, in 1842, if we look at how few actual clashes there were, I mean, I think this is pretty good evidence that the system was, in fact, working quite well. Now, how well it really worked in some ways didn't matter because as uh, trade around the world started to become a bit freer. We're really not talking about free trade, certainly not with a capital F and a capital T. Business people, uh, merchants in China, foreign merchants in China did start to complain, right? But a lot of that really is toward the 1830s or so, especially with the end of the East India Company's monopoly in 1834. Right? That's the part, the time when private traders start to demand more changes. So what happens in 1834? Why does it end in 1834? Oh, because in 1834, there's pressure from within the UK to end the East India Company's monopoly. In fact, the East Indian Company's monopoly had been uh, had been ended earlier, but they had been given special permission to, to remain in, in China. So this then gives an opportunity to others? This definitely gives an opportunity to others. And in fact, you can, you can measure this by the number of, of foreigners who start coming to China in the 1830s, even even before the monopoly ends. But if you look at the period before that in terms of, of collaboration rather than clash, I mean, you find basically that foreigners depend on Chinese at every single level, whether it's compradors, contractors, whether it's servants, whether it's cooks, whether it's uh, people who provide the food. I mean, this is actually a big story, and it's a long, it's, it's a long story. It's, it's one that does lead up to, to Hong Kong, and in fact, through the establishment of Hong Kong, right? You have Chinese and foreigners who are working together because there's money to be made. And yes, it's mutually beneficial. Yeah, right. And in some ways, why not? Why wouldn't you? Right? It's only if we start looking through this through a very nationalistic lens, we start asking, well, how could Chinese people work with foreigners? Well, again, the question I would ask is, why wouldn't they work with foreigners? Tell me about the role of a comprador in those days. Ah, the comprador. So most of the compradors in uh, Canton would have come from uh, Fujian before this. Um, some of them had been in, that, in the region for a while. These were men who often would pass the position down to their sons. They were basically what you would call a, a middleman or an inter intermediary today. When a, a foreign merchant arrived in Canton, he would be designated a comprador who would basically officially handle his business for him, as, as well as get him all the provisions he needed, as well as, uh, as accommodations and so on. What I find amazing about some of these translators or interpreters right. is just the technical or complicated uh, documents that they were sometimes translating. I mean, you have early dictionaries, um, um, but also uh, Bibles going the other way into right. Chinese, but also, as you say, these Qing Dynasty kind of items that are extremely complicated. They're very complicated. And uh, I mean, first thing I think we have to keep in mind is there were more Britons in Canton that who could read Chinese than we sometimes think. In fact, the East India Company, although it officially had a policy of not really encouraging the study of Chinese, on the ground in, in Canton, it did encourage some of its employees to, to, to learn Cantonese. Uh, but the two people in the early years who have the best Chinese really are George Thomas Staunton, who is working for the East India Company, 
Robert Morrison, who's really not supposed to be working for the East India Company, but is in fact working for the East India Company, and they are very, very close friends, um, but rumors do arise that they somehow are rivals in, in, in Chinese studies. And in his memoirs, which were published later on, I think in the 1850s or so, Staunton dismisses the, quote, absurd idea that there had ever been any sort of rivalry between him and Robert Morrison. He says, I was invariably his friend and advocate and considering the official position I held in China, I might add his patron. And he then goes on to point out, well, I was after all the first one to present him to the chief of the British factory, a man named Mr. Roberts, who then gave him a position, Morrison, and so on. And then he, he basically says, well, you know, uh, I cultivated the language altogether for different purposes and much less exclusively and assiduously than he did. And I freely acknowledge that he attained ultimately to a much greater degree of proficiency. Then we also have, though this is much earlier, Robert Morrison, who arrived in China in 1807, writes in his journals that Staunton could recognize some 2,000 Chinese characters and, quote, read any paper on business almost as readily as English. But in anything out of the common way, he must take a great deal of pains and then makes it out with difficulty. So maybe a bit of a rivalry there. I should also add that uh, there was Sinology in Europe, continental Europe, and uh, many of the Sinologists there actually would question the abilities of, of Staunton as well as uh, Robert Morrison, even though they would rely on their, on their scholarship at, at times. So yes, very complicated times, not to mention, by the way, which in terms of speaking, which dialect do you use? Oh, indeed. Right? I yes. mean, uh, you've got Staunton, who's in uh, Guangzhou, so it would only be natural for him to speak uh, speak Cantonese. You have some officials coming down every then who don't speak Cantonese. And then, on his way to the, um, the Amherst Embassy, he's actually learning a bit of Manchu as well, because he hopes that that's, that will help him negotiate with some of the officials he will meet in the imperial court in Peking. In Canton days, it's all men because that's the, that's the period that we're we're dealing with. It is all men, obviously, in terms of the uh, of the foreign community. But ironically, one of the most astute observers of this community is an American woman named Harriet Lowe. Now, Harriet Lowe has is from uh, Salem, Massachusetts, in in the United States. Her uncle lives in Macau and is a, a, an American trader, opium, like like anyone else, maybe some other goods as well. And the reason she has, she can tell us about all these, these British men who spend most of their life, their, their time in, in Canton, they come from Canton to Macau for what today would be called rest and recreation, right? They are there to uh, sometimes to see their wives. Some of them do have wives there. Um, they're coming back sometimes just to, to get out and about. They can ride horses or ponies, something they cannot do in, in Canton. So she does write quite a bit about them in great detail. It's a shame in many ways that she wasn't even more astute and perhaps not an even better writer, but uh, she does talk quite a bit about people, um, whether it's uh, Jardine Matheson or uh, John Davis and his wife, for example, or other East India Company officials. And she also sneaks in to Canton in the autumn of 1830. She sneaks in with her auntie, who lives in Macau, and then with um, several other British wives who go in. And they, they stay for a while. This leads to a bit of a, actually more than a bit, uh, a conflict between the local officials who then put the blame on the compradors because the compradors shouldn't be letting this whole kind of thing happen in the first place. And then eventually they all go back. And I think Harriet 
ends her journals or her diaries by saying something like, not that I would have wanted to stay there any longer anyway. <laughs> um, but this is not only an example of, of, of a woman who is telling us what's going on in Canton, but it's also an example of the kind of sources that are used because she does keep these diaries and journals supposedly to be sent back to her sister in the U.S., but it's not really clear if these were actually meant to be sent back or if they were simply journals that she was keeping. But valuable very valuable, very valuable, as yes. An outside observer, as you Yes, say. indeed, very, very valuable. So Harriet Lowe stays, so she's here in the 1830s, as you say. Yeah, not here, but in Canton, yes. Yeah. She, doesn't, she doesn't make it to Hong Kong, no. as far as I know. And no. then uh, shortly after, I think it's maybe 1831 or 1832, she heads back to the, the U.S. But, no, but she spends most of her time in Macau. Almost all of her time in Macau, yes, um, a very short period in the in, in Canton. Although it does enable her to to give us a little sense of what's going on in the community at the, at, at the time, but it's a very rich uh, rich source of materials. I mean, one one thing that uh, she basically points out, and I think some of the, the the British men in there probably wouldn't have been very happy to hear this, is that they really have a pretty good life in Canton, right? I think she also points out that some of them are actually quite happy not being there with their wives. Um, and that uh, you know these guys really live live pretty well. Interesting. <laughs> the controversies I mean, that yeah right, and it, and it's especially significant, I think, because especially as you lead into the the war years from 1834, the end of the East India Company monopoly up until the war, um, British merchants. So these are, again, these will be the private traders because the East India Company is already out. Um, the private traders traders start to complain about the deprivations and the hardships. And in some ways, um, Harriet Lowe has exposed them, right? Because she's, I mean, it's not like this is public information that she's writing about, but uh, I do think that if they had been able to see her diaries, they would have been quite upset. Um, but she really has said that, uh, that you live pretty well there. When people read Canton Days, uh, what are you hoping that the reader, that, that, that they get a picture of this time from the end of the 1700s yeah, onwards, right. that it isn't just about the Opium Wars? Right. Well, I think in many ways you've, you've put it as better than I could, right? We think of this period as one leading up to war. We think of this period through the lens of big people such as Jardine and Matheson, who, by the way, in some ways are reasonably late comers to the China scene. I mean, they get there in, in 18, the mid-1820s or so, and that's, that's, that's still reasonably, reasonably early. But there are people who have been there much, much longer. And uh, the book ends with a man named Thomas Beale. Thomas Beale was a Scotsman. He never identified as a Scotsman, but we do know this because in, his, in, in some of his correspondence, he complains about the English, so that one thing <laughs> leads to another. Um, Thomas Beale had gone to China, we believe, in the late 1700s, had been involved in all kinds of shenanigans, I suppose, you should, different uh, and speculations and whatnot. At one point, he decides to head back to the UK, but he more or less gets stuck in Macau, and then he, one night during the Opium War, kills himself. He sets it up in a very interesting way that you will have to see if you read the, the whole book, but I can give you a hint now. He basically goes to three, finds three Chinese men, and he tells them that there is a dead body down on the beach and that you must go down and bury it. The three men say, well, no, we cannot do this. This will be, bring bad luck to our families. Or, you know, our patties will yield no rice and so on. And he says, well, wait a minute. If you don't, then the Portuguese authorities might suspect you of having to do something with it. Then they start to, to agree. And he says, no, wait, do it in the morning when the light is better. They say, okay. The next morning they go down to the beach 
and they find the dead body is none other than Thomas Beale, who has set up his own death. So he is actually, in fact, a very interesting man. What makes it even more interesting is that there is another Thomas Beale who is wandering around during those days, Thomas Shea Beale, who many sources identify as his nephew, but it seems was his son. Likely Eurasian, probably with a, from, a, from a Macanese woman, who then actually goes off and works for the other guys, or not the other guys, but Dent and company. I believe he works with them maybe even in Hong Kong, but certainly in Shanghai, maybe even in Singapore. I'm not, I'm not, not entirely sure. So Thomas Beale, in fact, is, is one of these, these. He also, by the way, keeps a, a huge aviary and gardens. Senior or junior? Gardens. Senior. Oh, no, sorry, the senior one. The senior one, yeah. So he's a fascinating man. I mean, any foreigner who ever went to Canton and Macau during that period always went to visit Thomas Beale and his, uh, and his aviary and, and, and gardens. He kept birds of paradise and, and you know, other, other sort of exotic creatures that you could not find, find elsewhere. The book does begin and end with death, right? So it begins with the death of, uh, of James Innes and, and Arthur Saunders Keating, and it ends with, in fact, the death of, of, of three, three Britons in this area. It ends with one is Lord Napier, the other is uh, Captain Stenhouse, who was sent to fight the war against uh, against the Qing Dynasty during the Opium War, and then finally with uh, with, with Thomas Beale. And again, one of the points that I've been trying to make in the book is that uh, you know not everybody succeeds. We think of the big people, but there are lots of little people who's not that little, I suppose, but who sort of slipped through the cracks. In terms of, I mean, obviously opium dominates, but what would some of the other items have been? Opium certainly does dominate in terms of the, the imports. Yeah, so imports. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, but that in some ways I think has colored our picture as well. And we, we often have this idea that Chinese were not interested in foreign goods. And that's not entirely true. Even woolens, cottons, and all kinds of... I mean, we have to remember that, that Britain was on its way to becoming the, 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 the workshop of the world, right? It did produce stuff. And just to give you some examples, when the two British embassies went to China, or you might call them missions, when they went up to, to, to Peking or Beijing. The first one was Lord McCartney's in, uh, in the 1790s. The second was Lord Amherst's of 1816 to 1817. As these embassies made their way up to Peking, they actually kept track of the British items they saw in local markets. The selection gets smaller and smaller the farther you get north, right? But as they come back down, the, the, they start to see more of this. So, in fact, the idea, the image of a China not interested in foreign goods uh, simply doesn't hold up. When you say that Britain was the workshop of the world, so this is the cotton mills in Lancashire? Yeah, I mean, again, this is the, these are the early years of the Industrial Revolution. And so what were they provide? So they were providing the cotton that was going to China? Well, some of it, yes, yeah. And uh, in terms of, uh, yeah, because no, that, that for me is fascinating that, that because, of course, China becomes a workshop, it is now and, and uh, in, in much later years, but that is uh, the Industrial Revolution is happening in England or in Britain at that time, so it needs to be fed with materials of different things. Yeah. Well, some people have said that the greatest effect of the Industrial Revolution on China was convincing the Chinese that they needed their own Industrial Revolution. Ah, but that's, uh, we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves. <laughs> But in terms of, you've got, um, so what are the other import items going in? Also clocks, watches, what are called sing songs, which I, I think maybe is sort of like a cuckoo clock or something like that, but all kinds of uh, mechanical devices, telescopes as well. We're coming in from Britain. 
Yes, yes, and, and Europe in general, too. In fact, uh, Robert Morrison keeps great uh, detailed accounts of what he wants people in the UK to send him. He wants uh, uh, pens, for example, to give friends as gifts. He wants all kinds of manufactured goods, little things that we might not think of. Um, just because, first of all, he needs them for his own daily daily use. But he also realizes that these are things that uh, that people in China want. Now, apart from the flower boats, is there actually any intermarriage? No, no, um, not so. First of all, Western women are not allowed to come to uh, to come to Canton. Now, you would might think that would lead to some uh, some marriages. It, it leads to some some dalliances, I'm sure. Um, now, in Macau, that's a different story. I mean, if but uh, again, if we want to look at the Portuguese community there and Portuguese merchants marrying Chinese women, we do have, we do have that. I don't know of a single uh, British merchant in China during this period who actually married a Chinese woman. You say that one of your uh, favorite characters as such is James Innes. Uh, is that because he's more interesting than some of the others? He's certainly interesting. He's he's bombastic. Um, he's he's resourceful. On the other hand, um, I mean, this is a man who does actually play an active role in in, in the affairs of the British community in China. Uh, when Lord Napier is dying in 1834, Lord Napier had been sent to China after the end of the East India Company to sort of get a better a better deal with uh, with China in terms of of, of trading. Uh, when he's he's dying, Innes actually offers. His accommodations to Lord Napier because they're more they're more spacious and, and more comfortable. So there is a, I mean maybe it's a, it's one Scotsman helping out another. Who 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 knows? But there is, there is a there is sort of a, a sensitive or tender side to to James Innes as well. He also appears, by the way, in the next book. Uh, there's a there's a, a sequel in a way or a companion volume, called uh, China Hands and Old Cantons, uh, Britain's writing about the the Middle Kingdom. And this is a book, looking at the writings by these these some of these very same men. Uh, it, it takes a slightly different argument by, by by trying to show that there was much more to than the writing about s simply opening China by force. In fact, uh, British people in China and those who lived there and those who simply visited there every now and then wrote a lot about what was going on in China. My thanks to Hong Kong historian Professor John Carroll, talking there on his book, Canton Days, British Life and Death in China. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.